0: Well, if your Bible's open at Nehemiah chapter 9, I wonder if, like me, you've ever wondered why is the Old Testament so long? And why is it the way it is? Such a long and detailed record. Detailing so often the failures of God's people. In Milford this morning we were thinking about the failure of Abram and Sarai. And we've seen Abram's many failures in his walk with God. And then we've just sang from Psalm 78, which recounts the failure of God's people and how they provoked him time and time again. And you read through uh, Exodus and Numbers, you read through Judges, you read through Joshua and Judges. You read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then you've got it all over again in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And then we come into Ezra and Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah record for us, even in Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're having recorded for us another chunk of Old Testament history, recapping all that has happened. Why? Why is it like this? Well, there are many, many reasons For it, but part of it is that this is visual theology. God wants to teach us lessons about who He is, about what His forgiveness is like, what His salvation is like, and He paints it for us in real time and real history so that we can see it. But why this ongoing grubby record of the failure of Israel to me it's one of the proofs that the Bible is true as we mentioned this morning in Milford if you were setting out to say look here is the history of God's favoured people and you were making it up would you describe it in these terms that are so littered with inglorious failure Surely not. Uh, you would make up a more wonderful history. But here it is in all its grotty detail, and it shows to us that, yes, this is true. It uh, Couldn't be anything but that, surely. Um, but why all this failure, as well as showing us something of the truth of Scripture? It shows us the truth of what we see in the verse we're looking at this evening. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. But you are a God of forgiveness. Or as the English Standard Version has it, but you are a God of pardons. Or as the King James wonderfully has it, you are a God ready to pardon. Charles Spurgeon, uh, preaching on this verse, his first point was this. I think it sums up uh, the answer to the question that I've asked and it sums up what we'll see this evening. The history of Israel. First I wanted to note the history of Israel as singularly illustrating the readiness of God to pardon. It singularly illustrates for us the readiness of God to pardon. and And we see in the passage how this is set out for us. Uh, sometimes I show you my Preparation, this is some of it, uh, it's an exercise in colouring in sometimes. And uh, the purple is where I've highlighted all the times that it says, you, you did this, you created the heavens, you entered into covenant, you saw their suffering, you gave them regulations, you provided for them in the wilderness. The orange, but they, but they. And then the yellow, but you. But you, and although our English versions don't tend to show it, there's, I think, five times, maybe six times, there's a little phrase in Hebrew that it says, but you. And I'll highlight those uh, as we go through. And that gives us our structure this evening. First of all, we want to see, very briefly, the pink. God's people gloriously favored. There's the sorry I'm showing it only in one direction. Uh, God's people gloriously favored. Nehemiah recounts from verse um, six, now verse five, right down through to verse fifteen. A brief history of God's activity on behalf of his people. He speaks of creation and how God called The world into being. How he established this beautiful stage on which all the activity of the great scheme of redemption is going to take place. And what a beautiful stage. What beautiful scenery it is. And we've seen it. uh, And there's nowhere like Donegal actually. uh, Those of you from County Antrim and from Dublin. There's nowhere like Donegal for seeing the beauty and splendor of God's creation. You can see it just as you go out and look around you. And Nehemiah goes on quickly. He then speaks of the God who chooses and saves. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram. You made a covenant with him. You have kept your promise. Verse 9. He speaks of redemption. You saw the suffering of our ancestors. You sent sign owners. You made a name. You divided the sea. You hurled their pursuers. By day you led them by a pillar of cloud. God redeemed them. God's glorious activities for his people. He protected them. Verse 11. Uh, you divided the sea. So they passed through. You hurled their pursuers into the depths. He guided them, verse 12. You led them, verse 13. He gives them his law, his good law. Those words that instructed them how to live in a way that rescued people should live. How God calls his holy people to live holy lives. And then we see in verse 15 his provision for them. You brought water, from the rock, in your hunger you gave them bread. You told them to go in and take possession of the land. Was ever a people so gloriously favored? You would think that this was the only nation on the face of the earth and that here is God taking particular delight in these people because that's the only people that are there. But they're not. They're not the only people. And God favors them as so much. No other nation enjoyed it. No other people enjoyed this favour except us, those of us who have come to Christ. Israel's history is an illustration of our history, of the glorious favour that God has shown to us. He created this beautiful world to be the stage on which your Redemption could take place so that you could know the God who made all of this. He chose you before time began. Set his electing love on you as he did with Abram. He entered into covenant with you. He redeemed you from the slavery that sin held you in by sending his son to die on the cross. He has protected you. He has led you and guided you. He has given you his word. He has provided and he will bring you safely home. God's people gloriously favored. And even more gloriously favored are we because we know what Christ has done so that we could be part of God's beloved people. That sets the, the backdrop for the contrast that comes in the next words in verse 16. We could spend all night on the first point, but we have to hurry because uh, we want to get to the last point to see something even more wonderful than God's glorious favoring. But we need to see our reaction, Israel's reaction. Secondly, we see woeful ingratitude. Woeful ingratitude. Look at verse 16. But they, are forefathers... This singularly blessed people. These people who had received so much, who had lived. These people had lived amongst more miracles than any other human beings until the time of Jesus. And in fact, with perhaps the exception of the twelve disciples, nobody in the history of the world has lived amongst so many miracles As those children of Israel did. They were in Egypt. And they saw the plagues. They came out of Egypt and saw the Red Sea. And the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They saw the provision of water. And the provision of manna and the provision of quail. They saw the defeat of some of their enemies. And the various battles that they fought. Even before they came to the promised land. And this people. This people. God had camped in their midst. God had said, make a tent for me. I'm coming with you. I'm going to be there with you. I will be God in the midst. I will be in a tent too. How incredible. This is the God that said to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. And he had fed them and he had led them and he had taught them to walk and to stand again and to fight. He, he treated them like a, a little child who needed to be carried. In Deuteronomy one thirty one: In the wilderness you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way. But they, we read, but they. They became arrogant and stiff-necked. And in verses 16, in the first half of verse 17, Nehemiah unpacks four things that I want us to look at. They were infinitely proud. Infinitely proud. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant. They'd been brickmakers. They'd been slaves. They needed God to rescue them completely. They were so weak and frail that God, in His mercy, didn't take them in the most direct route to the, the Promised Land because they would meet the Philistine garrisons and they would be slaughtered. He took them down by the Red Sea to take them out through the wilderness of Sinai so that they could grow and become strong, and so that He could defeat their enemies, the Egyptians, clearly and once and for all for them. He had done it all. They had come out of Egypt. Well, they had been in Egypt with nothing, they were slaves. They had to go grubbing for straw and they came out of Egypt like princes laden with silver and gold. And who had done it? God had done it all. If ever there were a people who should have been humble, it was them. But oh no, they strut and they swagger and they complain against God and they murmur against him. And they slap his miracle food, as it were, out of his hand and say, We don't want this. Oh, that we had the leeks. Leeks? Really? (laughs) Oh, oh, that we had the leeks and garlic of Egypt. Oh, that we had the cucumbers. The cucumbers. And our jaw hits the deck as we read this. Infinitely proud and yet... Is it not the case that we sometimes live as if we have made ourselves? Sometimes we can look down our noses at those whose lives are caught up in all sorts of sin and we we can feel superior to them. And we we tut and we shake our heads as if we can pat ourselves on the back for where we're at. Or we complain about the circumstances that God give, has given to us when in actual fact we deserve hell. Is there not pride there? Well then we take credit for what he does. We pat ourselves on the back for what he's done in our lives and what he's doing through us woeful and gratitude can mark our lives too and then we look at these people and we see in the next phrase they're deliberately defiant verse 16 stiff-necked they did not obey your commands they refused to listen they were stiff-necked like a calf uh, that uh, doesn't want to have a yoke put on it Uh, that wants to to push and to fight away the farmer. Um, There's something ironic in the phrasing that's used because it calls to mind, actually, the golden calf that they worshipped. They they became like what they worshipped at Mount Sinai. And this was not an accidental sin. This was willful rebellion. Remember Korah, Dathan, Abiram. Remember the golden calf. Remember Nadab and Abihu. Remember the complaining. Remember Miriam and Aaron complaining against Moses. Remember the immorality with the Moabite woman. Remember their refusing, refusing to enter the promised land. Incredible, woeful ingratitude. After all that God had done, they refused to enter the promised land. After all, and it, that has been done, they commit the same offences over and over again, and they know it offends God, and they murmur, and they whine, and they complain. And we shake our heads, and we think, really, how could they do that? And yet we know ourselves that that's just like us. And we display our ingratitude by sinful defiance, where we go our way and do our thing. And it's not accidental. Sometimes our sin is as it were accidental. We don't know that we're doing wrong, and wrong engulfs us. But but there are times when our sinful actions are deliberate and defiant. And then we see that they are sinfully forgetful. We read in verse sixteen. They refused, sorry, verse 17, they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. How many times do we read that there was no water and God provided water? And then the next time there's no water, what do we do? They they complain. Think, hold on a minute. You saw God provide water for you. Can you not think, well, he, he did it miraculously once. He he might do it again. Let's come to him and hope. And we'll say, Lord, you did it before. Do it again. Do it again. But oh no, they whinge and they complain and they moan. And then we come again to another another incident where there's no water. And they do the same again. The same with, you know, God had brought them. He brought them out of Egypt. All those plagues. They come to the Red Sea. They say, what did you bring us here for? We're all going to be killed. Could they not have thought... Look, the God who sent all those plagues on Egypt, that God might just possibly be able to, to do something and to provide a way through the Red Sea. God could be able to do never mind going through the Red Sea. Maybe that takes too much faith. But maybe he could destroy all of the Egyptians. He's just, he has just killed the firstborn of every one of them. Maybe he could kill all these soldiers. But oh no, they whine and they complain instead of connecting what they have seen in the past to what they were experiencing in the present, you'd think after all the provision they've had, they could trust God, but at the slightest trouble, instead of saying, well, he's done all this for us, he's sure to not let me down. Instead of doing that, instead of arguing from what God has done in the past, And having some measure of confidence about the future. They act as if the past never happened. And they look at the future as if God doesn't care. And they pontificate about the unknown future as if God has done nothing for them. It's a sinful forgetfulness. And yet how often do we do the same? We look at the future as if God has done nothing for us in the past. And we worry and we agonize about the future. And we pontificate about the future. As if God hasn't already given us his son. And if he's given us his son, how much more will he do all things for us? We forget. We do it too. And then the fourth thing we've had. Infinitely proud, deliberately defiant, sinfully forgetful. And then there's spiritual desertion. Spiritually deserting. And in their rebellion, we read, they appointed another leader in order to return to their slavery. You read that and you think, were they mad? They what? They appointed another leader, okay, fair enough, to take them to the promised land. But oh no, they appointed another leader in order to return to their slavery. What kind of sickness is this? They would rather go back to the bricks. Go back to the whipping. Go back to the pain. Go back to the starvation. Away from God. Away from glory. Away from miraculous provision. Away from the promised land. That's, they're, they're, they're saying, God, oh, just get Put away all of your promises. Put away all of that. We're going back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. To the leeks and to the garlic. They were cheaply bought. So they were heading back to their slavery. Do you see what I mean about that? the staggeringly woeful ingratitude? And yet, and yet, how cheaply are we bought at times as we return? To our ways of slavery to this world, to our besetting sins, to our regular temptations, to our old habits. And this is us too. We, we, we fit into this history. Why, why does God paint this history so clearly for us? It's because it's a mirror. And we see ourselves in it. And what is to be done? What will God do? How does God meet their sin? And yes, we know that God judged the people. And God brought destruction on many. But he always maintained forgiveness to those who were repentant. He maintained a remnant of. And that's what Isaiah, not Isaiah, that's what Nehemiah is wanting us to see here. That as he heaps up all of God's glorious favoritism, as it were, and then as he multiplies the ingratitude of the people, he then says, "But you are a forgiving God, or but you are a God of pardons." And that brings us to our third point. This is. Not even what Nehemiah is building towards at this moment, but that's what this section is building towards. Abundantly forgiving. Gloriously favored. That's the people of God. The people of God are woeful in gratitude. And God is abundantly forgiving. But you are a God of pardons. But you are are ready to pardon. But you are a God ready to pardon. Like in Luke 15, in the the parable of the prodigal son and the father, instead of standing, uh, waiting for the son to come to him, runs to him and he interrupts the son before the son can get out all of the things he wants to do to earn forgiveness. The father interrupts. He says, you're not going to be a servant. It's effectively what he's saying. You're my son. Get the robe and put it on him. Here is a God ready to pardon. And I want us to to stop and feel the force of this verse. After all that we've heard, the greatness of God takes verses to, 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 uh, to explain and unpack. And then the ingratitude of the people is in a verse and a half of intense. Every word and phrase unpacks the viciousness Of their sinfulness. The ingratitude of it. And then we read. But you are a God of pardons. But you are a forgiving God. After all he had done. After all they did. This is abundant forgiveness. Abundant forgiveness. And let let me show you the abundance of it. Just with, with four things. There's an abundance in his character. There's an abundance in his character. Look at verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's an echo of Exodus 34, verse 6, where Moses, after the golden calf incident, had asked to see the glory of God. And God, said, I will let, let my greatness pass in front of you. And Moses sees the trailing edge of the greatness of God, but he he hears God pronouncing his name. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that that verse, as I've mentioned before, is the most repeated verse, most quoted verse in the Old Testament. It's as if God's people thought on this picture, this picture, this description, this portrait of their God, often, and there's an abundance in there, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in love, slow to anger, and he hasn't changed that's why that's one of the wonderful things about seeing it repeated over the course of the Old Testament. God's people are meditating on this truth because God hasn't changed in his character. This is what he is. There's an abundance of forgiveness. He doesn't change. Here's Nehemiah. This is perhaps the last recorded occurrence chronologically of the phrase. Jonah quotes it inside the belly of the fish. Or rather, no, he, no, he quotes it Uh, That's not right. He quotes it in chapter 4 where he's using it as a complaint against God for sparing Nineveh. But I knew that you were gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you'd forgive these people. (laughs) God doesn't change. Even when he's dealing with repentant Ninevites, he doesn't change. There's an abundance in his character. There's an abundance in face of intense provocation. Never mind verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17. Look at verse 18. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. At that point you'd have thought, right, you're done for. You'll all be destroyed. it will all be destroyed. And there were pardons then. A God of pardons. A God of pardons. Do you need to be reminded that in spite of our provocation, there is plenteous redemption. He is a God of pardons. He is a God of forgiveness. A God ready to pardon. He doesn't need to be bought to receive his pardon by us. He doesn't need to be bought by us. He's not a God who needs to have his arm twisted to pardon. He is a God of pardons. And verse 19 starts with another of those but you phrases. It doesn't come out in the NIV. But you, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them. There's an abundance in this face of intense provocation. There's an abundance in his provision, verse 19. But you, in your great compassion, what did he do? He guided them. He didn't say, Look, I'm out of here. I'm washing my hands of you. Make your own way to the promised land. You're on your own. That's it. He led them. He taught them. Says, um You gave verse twenty, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Spurgeon says, you know, God didn't say, Well, take down the tabernacle. Take it away. Take take down the tabernacle. I'm not going to live amongst them. I'm not going to teach these people anymore. He kept on teaching them. You want to know that he's abundant in his forgiveness? Look at how he treats these people. There's an abundance to his provision for them. And then there's a provision of manna and water. Verse 20 and 21. There's the provision of victory, arrival. And then this life in the promised land. Verse 25. They ate to the full, were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. What an abundance to an ungrateful people. And you know, isn't that isn't that the case with God with us? We go on in our flawed ways, we fumble along in sin, and he continues to lead us, he continues to teach us, he continues to provide for us. Can't we say he is a God of pardons too? He is a God of pardons. And then the fourth aspect of this abundance we're only halfway through the chapter. And there's an abundance in persistent forgiveness. Cast your eye down the chapter with me. We've had, reached this seeming climax in verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. And then verse 19. But you, because of your great compassion. And then we read of, of how he continued to provide for them. Right down to verse 25. And then what do we find? They're not done sinning. But they were disobedient. And what's that met with? Well in verse 27. Towards the end of it. There's that little phrase again in the Hebrew. Wa'ata. But you. It's translated here. And in your great compassion. You gave them deliverers. But you. Gave them deliverers. Verse 28. They're at it again. But as soon as they were at rest. Later on in that verse, that same phrase, but you heard from heaven. That's so not translated but in the, in, the, in, our, in the NIV, but it is, it's, but you heard from heaven. Verse, um, verse 30, we, we find again, they're, they're disobeying. You warned them. They sinned against your ordinances. Look at verse 31. But in your great mercy, So it goes on. Every time. Verse 33. uh, Verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. Actually, it's that phrase again. But you have remained righteous. We've done all this. But you have remained righteous. And what does this show us? It shows us. That there is a persistence in the abundance of God's forgiveness. He is a God ready to pardon. He is a God of pardons. It is as if he has a whole sackful of pardons ready to keep throwing out. As one of the puritans said, there is more forgiveness in Christ than there is sin in us. Here, pardon. Here's pardon. Every time they fail and return, they find a God of pardons. Most incredible, every time we fail, every time we fall, every time we say, but, but I. Every time a spectator could say about our lives, but they did this, but they fell. Look, but, 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 but God, they did this. Every time Satan comes along, says, but they've fallen here, Lord, they've failed you. Every time your conscience says, but you did this. God matches it with that, but but I am a God of pardons. But I am a God of pardons because of Christ. He's a God of pardons to His people. We cannot outsend the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. It may not be. Well, it may be for us an issue of assurance. Or we look and say something in our past. We say, I did this. I did this. And maybe maybe I'm not forgiven for it. Well, if that's you this evening, listen. Listen to, to this. Verse 17. But you are a God of pardons. Why is the Old Testament written? Well, how else could we be convinced that God is a God full of Of pardon. We read the failed record of God's flawed people, and our focus is wrong. Our focus should be on the God who is full of pardons. Incredible. Incredible. One writer says Despite our sin, God is gracious. Despite God's grace, we continue to sin. Despite our continued sin, God continues to. To be gracious. And then he says. God's forgiveness. Is something no human could devise. But that any human. Could experience. And now Nehemiah comes to verse 35. And I have another orange stripe on my page. That highlights the sin of God's people. Even while they were in their kingdom enjoying their, your great goodness to them, they turned to their evil ways. You see what Nehemiah's been doing? He's been reminding himself over and over again, but you're a God of forgiveness. But you're a God of forgiveness. But you're a God of forgiveness. And so he's coming now again to say, but we've failed. And what's our anticipation? I'm anticipating that in terms of my coloring in pattern, that God will respond with a yellow stripe after that orange request or that orange admission of failure because he's a God full of pardons. And in your life, there's that orange stripe that marks, but I've fallen again. And we come to this God and we're wondering, maybe this time he'll not forgive me. We can say, but you're a God of pardons. Does that leave us free to sin as we like? Absolutely not. We sang earlier from Psalm 130, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Our our forgiveness causes us to hate sin, to love God. How could I want to willingly offend a God who has done so much for me, to free me from sin's guilt? And from sin's power. I'm not going to live in such ways anymore. But when I fall into them. And my conscience condemns me. And Satan accuses me. I can go to the cross. And I can say with Nehemiah. But you are a God of pardons. A God ready to pardon. A God full of forgiveness. A God slow to anger. And abounding in love. Well let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this little phrase that acts as a pivot point in the lives of the people of Israel and in our lives that speaks to us of, yes, you have done so much for us. Yes, we have sinned. But it stands as a contrast. On one side of it is our ugly sin. On the other side of but you is your glorious, rich mercy and compassion and love. Thank you for that. And Father, we pray that you would help us to hold this in our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to fight sin. That we will not keep falling like the children of Israel did. But we know that we will fall. But help us when we fall to come back and when our consciences accuse us, when Satan accuses us, grant us the ability to remember that you are a God whose character hasn't changed, who in the face of utmost provocation remains merciful to his sorrowful people. That you are a God who continues to abundantly provide and that you are a God who continues to persistently forgive his people. How we thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.